Let us bow in prayer before reading God's Word. Our Father, this minister, this under-shepherd, comes through the great shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus, through his shed blood and merit, and asks that the Holy Spirit that was given to the church on Pentecost will also now be at work as you indwell your people through the Holy Spirit, and as the Spirit of God moves in our midst and works in hearts, that lost people who may be gathered here in the midst of your people may come to faith in Jesus, and that your people will grow in the most holy faith and in their commitment to this gospel of sovereign free grace. We ask in the name of Christ that you will do what human endeavor cannot and bless your word to the salvation of souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 19, beginning with verse 30. This is the word of God. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Verse 15 of this 20th chapter is translated by the authorized version, the old King James. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? And that is the point of the parable. God is sovereign. God is on his throne. Sinful men do not want him there, but there he is. He distributes salvation as he will. Often when we say this, the objection is raised, that is unjust. The parable deals with that very thing. No matter who comes to salvation, that person comes by grace. They contribute nothing. They leverage no personal merit. They earn no grace. 
each receives from God the same wondrous salvation. May God bow us low before his throne this morning. A man, a woman, will only truly worship when his or her heart is bowed before the throne of a sovereign God. And your response to the doctrine of God's sovereignty will show a great deal about your heart and your relationship to the Lord, whether rebellious or rather submissive to him. Let's begin with this point. Sovereign grace, the context. Sovereign grace, the context. That is, I want you to see the context in which the parable comes. Now, you will recall that in the preceding passage, as we saw a couple of weeks back, there was this rich young man who came to Jesus and he said, Good master, what may I do to inherit eternal life? He had much to offer, this young man. He was rich, he was moral, but he had nothing to offer as we saw before God. He had nothing whatsoever that he could leverage before God. He had no merit of his own before God. And then Jesus stresses the principle of grace in chapter 19, verse 26, when he says, With man this, that is to say the salvation of a rich man, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. God is a God of grace. He can do what man cannot do. And then as we come to the parable itself, did you note how Jesus brackets the parable? In verse 30 of chapter 19, he begins, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then in verse 16 of chapter 20, at the end of the parable, he says the same thing in somewhat different order. So the last will be first, and the first last. That is to say, those who have nothing to offer are those who enter into the kingdom of God, and those who have much to offer do not enter into the kingdom of God. The Lord uses this parable, and he begins by saying in verse 1 of chapter 20, For the kingdom of heaven is like... He uses this parable about work to show that salvation is not by works. The context is not so much about service. It's not really about rewards. It's really about salvation. Second thing we want to see as we actually move into the parable are the sharers of grace. There's a landowner who has a vineyard and he hires workers. I mean, after all, they're going to need to plant. They'll need to fertilize. They'll need to prune. They'll need to harvest. And he hires temporary day workers for this, those who would be on the bottom of the economic list in the ancient world. And there was an agreed price, a denarius for a day, which was good pay. The wage of a Roman soldier was a denarius. The workers then agreed to the terms. And then he hired more workers. The workday would begin at 6 a.m. and would end at 6 p.m. Keep that in mind. About the third hour, 9 a.m., he goes, and the owner went to the marketplace, and he found others in the town, and he agrees to pay them whatever is right. Still more workers come at noon, and then at 3 p.m., and then to our surprise, at the 11th hour, that would be 5 p.m., the workday ends at 6, at 5 p.m., he says, why are you not working? Come, work for me. And the work ends at 6 o'clock. When the time came then for paying wages, Jesus says in this parable, the last group worked one hour from five to six, if the whole hour, because they actually were hired at five o'clock, and the owner says, pay them their wages. And he paid beginning with the last group to the first, because Jesus is illustrating, but many who are first will be last and the last first. So the last will be first and the first last. 
And he did not reverse the order of payment. That is to say, the amounts were not less for those who worked least and more for those who worked longest. The point here is that those hired at the 11th hour each received the same pay. Each of them received a denarius. We must understand all of the workers received the very same pay. All of the workers received a denarius. All shared in the grace of the owner. Third point as we move on in the parable, a question of justice. Now you tell me, as you read this parable in your devotions, as we read it this morning, is your heart not at least somewhat with these men who complain? Don't you say within your heart, this isn't right. There's a justice issue here. These guys worked all day long. Various ones worked very long in the day. Then here come those that work only at the last hour and they are paid exactly the same as those who have worked longer periods during the day and those who have worked the entire work day. Those who worked at the 11th hour, the 9th hour, the 6th hour, the 3rd hour, are paid just like those who have worked the entire workday. All received a denarius. And they must have thought, if those men who worked one hour receive such good pay, then our pay is going to be huge. If these men who worked only an hour received a denarius, then what is our pay going to be for working all of these days? What a shock then, when each is paid by the landowner, a denarius. They grumbled, those who worked longer. Look at verses 11 and 12 here in chapter 20. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Wait, they're saying, in essence. We were hired first. We should receive more. They were hired last. They should receive much less. They only worked an hour. We worked all day in the heat. In the scorching sun, this is not fair. This is not just. Which leads us to our fourth point as we unpack the parable. Understanding grace. Understanding grace. How does the landowner respond? He responds this way. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity so the last will be first and the first last? What does Jesus mean by this parable? Jesus uses an everyday work situation to teach that salvation is not by works. All who receive Christ by faith receive the same salvation, receive the same eternal life. Each is accepted in the righteousness of Christ. Each will be acquitted on the day of judgment because clothed in his perfect righteousness. We will all stand equally on that day in regard to this eternal salvation. There will be rewards of grace, of course, but that is not Jesus' point here. He's talking about the kingdom, entrance into the kingdom. He's talking about salvation. You who have been given a relatively easy life, who believe in Jesus, will receive the same salvation as those who were burned at the stake or those who were eaten by lions in Rome. 
The person who trusts in Christ on his deathbed will have the same salvation as those who trusted Christ for many years. And I know within the hearts of some here, you are saying exactly what those workers did. That is unjust. No, it is not unjust. Why? Because salvation did not depend on you. Because you made no contribution to your salvation. Because salvation is in Christ alone and his atoning work. The parable says, is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? And that is the point. You have no claims on mercy. You and I have no right to grace or it would no longer be grace. So Paul says in Romans eleven six, And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. You and I did not come to Christ with any merit. But as Isaiah 64, 6 puts it, We are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Unjust of God to dispense His grace as He will? It could be unjust only if it were owed to us, and then it would be works, it would be merit, and no longer be grace. Unfair, someone is still saying within his heart. Unfair. Only if God owes us is it unfair. He owes us nothing. He owes us nothing outside of Christ but justice. You don't want fair. You don't want the justice of a holy and a righteous God, do you? Where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched? Thank God, believer in Jesus Christ, paid that debt in full. There was a debt and that debt must be paid and he paid it completely and utterly. No, God dispenses his grace sovereignly. And every believer is blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every believer has eternal life. Every believer has a prepared place in heaven. Every believer will be like him when we see him, for we shall see him as he is. Eternal life is not given on a sliding scale. All of God's people are saved through the merit of Christ We receive that salvation by grace, and all of us equally have eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Jesus uses a parable about the workplace to help you and to help me see that salvation is not by works, but by grace. Which leads us to our fifth point. God sovereignly dispenses his grace. This is what the Bible everywhere teaches. In other words, this parable invites us to think about what the Bible everywhere says about salvation by grace. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? By which God is saying, is it not right, lawful for me to dispense my grace as I see fit? Does not the Bible everywhere teach this? Does not the Bible teach that we have no merit of our own? Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Yes, we have earned 
wages, but the wages we have earned is death. Do not put your miserable performances between yourself and Christ. The only debt that is owed to us by nature is death, condemnation, and wrath. Does not the Bible teach that we are fallen in Adam and totally depraved? Romans 8, 7. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, so they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Don't whitewash what the Bible says about the depravity of us as sinners. From the crown of the head to the sole of the foot, there is no soundness in man, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. We are fallen in Adam, and we are totally depraved. Does not the Bible teach that our total inability to recover ourselves from our fallen estate is the result of that sin and depravity? Ephesians 2.1 And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So we have a corrupt nature, corrupt mind, corrupt affections, and we have a corrupt will. You know, I know some people that think, yeah, man has fallen to a degree, but his will is still, is still pretty good. And he can actually bring himself to life and put himself into a savable state. No, he cannot. We have a corrupt mind, corrupt affections, a corrupt will. We are totally unable to recover ourselves from our fallen estate or to put ourselves into some savability. Does not the Bible teach that behind our salvation is God's eternal decree, God's eternal election? Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, according as he has chosen us in him from before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons by Christ Jesus. He chose his people not according to anything within us, not according to any foreseen faith or merit, not according to any good work. We had none, but according to his own sovereign will. We loved him because he first loved us. The initiative is altogether God's initiative in the salvation of the soul. Does not the Bible teach? That the Father draws sovereignly his people to himself by irresistible grace. John 6, 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. We sang a Philip Doddridge hymn this morning, that second hymn. There's another one that perhaps you know. Oh, happy day that fixed my choice. And there's a line that reads, He drew me and I followed on, charmed to confess the voice divine. Do you know that passage in the Song of Solomon where the spouse says in the song, Draw me and I will run after thee. That's what he does. He draws us with bands and cords of love sovereignly and effectually. Does not the Bible teach that God grants the new birth to whomsoever he will? 
John 3, 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it came from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Does not the Bible teach that the very faith with which you embrace Jesus Christ and trust in Him for your salvation is His gift of sovereign free grace? For we are told in Ephesians 2.8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Does not the Bible teach that God is sovereign over all things, over all men, and over the salvation of sinners? Psalm 103.19 The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. All, I ask you, my friend, is it not lawful for God to do what He will with His own? May He not dispense His grace as He sees fit? If we have no merit of our own, it must be by grace. If we are fallen in Adam and totally depraved, it must be that we are saved by grace. If we are totally unable to recover ourselves from our fallen estate, but we are dead in our trespasses and sins, it must be that we are saved by grace. If it is true that God saves us because behind it is His own eternal and sovereign choice, then our salvation must be by grace. If it is true that He draws irresistibly His own unto Himself, then our salvation must be by grace. If it is true that He grants the new birth to whomsoever He will, then it must be by grace. If it is true that our very faith to believe in Jesus is His gift of grace to us, then we must be saved by grace alone. If it is true that God is sovereign over all things, over men and over our salvation, then it must be true that salvation is by grace. It is all of grace from first to last. God in the commencement, God in the continuing, God in the consummation. It is all of grace from first to last. Salvation is not by chance, but by God's gracious choice. I ask you, why do you rejoice in Christ while the world thinks that it's foolish? Why do you gather here and you glory in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus? You glory in the cross of Christ while your neighbor laughs at the cross of Jesus and his shed blood. Why is it that you wonder in the gospel and you are lost in the wonder of what God does to save you from your sins while your neighbor could care less? I will tell you why. The sovereign grace of God. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? Why do you delight in grace and gospel while your neighbor perishes in indifference? Why is it that on a morning such as this, we could have two people sitting in a pew? Perhaps they are identical twins. They've never been here before. They think alike. They read the same books. They have the same interests. They look alike. Everything about them seems to be alike. They've had the same parentage. They've had the same education. One walks out this morning and he says, my sins are washed away. The other walks out and says, I don't even understand what has been preached. Why? The sovereign grace of God. Why did you come and your neighbor did not answer 
the sovereign grace of God. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? Why will all true believers persevere to the end and all false professors fall away? We persevere to the end by the sovereign grace of God. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? And nothing is more comforting to a true believer in Jesus Christ than this. That we have a conquering Savior. That every saved soul rejoices in the truth that the Lord reigns. That He rules as King. This is His true character. God is God. And those who know God know the only place to have a real, firm, true salvation is here. Let me tell you. You can trust the God who chose His people to salvation. You can trust the God who sent His Son who purchased you with His own shed blood. You can trust the God who effectually, irresistibly, and graciously drew you to Himself. You can trust the God who sovereignly promises that none can pluck His own from His Father's hand, but that we are preserved and will persevere to the end. The believer in Jesus rejoices in this reality. Do you? Do you? Do you, people of God, see this to be the great and wondrous truth that it is? But if it is true that nothing is more comforting to a true believer, nothing is so despised by false religionists who do not know God than the confession of God's sovereignty. Men do not want God on His throne with a right to do what he will, when he will, where he will, with whom he will, and to save his creature without merit. This is the God, people of of God, this is the God who says he sets one up and he puts down another. This is the God of whom the scriptures say, He does what he wills in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What doest thou? This is the God of whom Holy Scripture says, He is the potter and has power over the clay. And we are the clay over whom the potter has power. So that salvation is totally of the Lord in its planning. It is totally of the Lord in its execution. It is totally of the Lord in its application. Totally of the Lord in its continuance. Totally of the Lord in its finality and in its consummation. Thank God it is all of grace from first to last, or I would be lost forever. If ever it should come to pass that feeble souls might fall away, this fickle, feeble soul, alas, would fall a thousand times a day. It is only by grace that we are saved and kept for eternity. God seeks and saves in his initiative and power. We are not saved by merit. We are not saved on demand. We are not saved on our terms. But we sing the glory, Lord, from first to last is due to thee alone. Ought to ourselves we dare not take or rob thee of thy crown. Our glorious surety undertook to satisfy for man and grace was given us in Him. 
before the world began. Believer, take heart in this wondrous grace. But I also want to say, unbeliever here with us today, you take heart in this sovereign grace. For your hope is here. If you're an unbeliever and you're actually tracking with me and understanding the content of what I'm saying, then you will say, Pastor, you're leaving me helpless on my own. Pastor, you're leaving me hopeless in my own resources. Yes. 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 You are understanding precisely the point. And if you see that in your heart, you see it because God is opening your heart by grace. For a sinner will see that only by grace, only by saving grace. What do we mean? When Jesus says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And when Jesus says, though the last will be first and the first last, he means for us to understand, the one with nothing to offer shall be first. The one who thinks he's first with all that he has to offer, he will be last. And if you can come in your heart and say, Lord, I see it now. I have nothing to give. I have no merit of my own. I have nothing to offer. I have not a thimble full of works that I can bring into your presence that I might be accepted with you. If you see that, you see it by grace. And you see that your only hope is in Jesus Christ who shed his blood for sinners. Come to him. Come to him. Come to him and not to yourself. You have nothing. Come to him. When God saves a sinner, when he draws sinners to himself... He brings us low. We see we have no resources of our own, no merit with which to bargain. It is all in Christ. Because the gospel, my friend, the gospel is not man's quest for God. It is God's quest for man. So you come and you sing, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That's what grace does for the sinner. And the sovereign grace of God does not in the least hinder this preacher from calling you at this moment to faith in Christ and from saying to you, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. I am not hindered in the least by the sovereignty of God. I'm energized by the sovereignty of God because I believe this is an appointed moment. We're here in His providence to hear this word. Cannot God raise the dead even as I speak His word right now at this moment? Can He not give life to the dead even as the preacher preaches right now? Cannot the Holy Spirit open and regenerate your heart, draw you to Himself, show you your need of Christ, and save you even at this moment? I say to you, come, 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 come and welcome to Jesus Christ. 
Are you not responsible? Yes, you are. Is not God of, God of grace? Yes, He is. Does He not promise to save a multitude which no man can number from every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation on earth? Yes, He will. I say to you, don't let grace hinder you. The truth of grace draws you. Come, come, come. Because your only hope is in the grace and the power and the omnipotence of this God who opens His Word to the hearts of sinners such as you and such as me. That is what grace does. Now let me tell you, God is putting increasingly a deep, deep hunger in your pastor's heart to see the lost come to know Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Are you tasting that as well? Do you long for that too? Calvinists make the best evangelists. That's historically provable. You know, this revival for which I've been encouraging us to pray as a congregation can only come in the sovereignty of God. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? There have been times in the church in which there's been coldness, iciness, deadness, no outreach in the history of the church. We've seen that often. And then we find the singing of birds has come. And springtime arrives in the church. What is happening? God makes his arm bear in genuine revival. Revival originates in the sovereignty of God. Therefore, ask him for it. Does he not promise to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And historically, as we look at revival, the first signs of revival are a new sense of prayer among the people of God and a new power on the preaching of his word. So I urge you, people of God, do not be complacent. Pray, seek the Lord, ask him for this for the church in our day, in our land. Share your faith. May God stir you, shake you, wake you. Because a true understanding of God's sovereignty has always throughout church history made his people burning evangelists for Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. Get it. A true understanding of God's sovereignty has always through church history made his people burning evangelists for Jesus Christ. John Calvin was a burning evangelist for Jesus Christ. Shall we mention George Whitfield? Crossed the Atlantic seven times to preach the gospel in a day in which he came in a little sailboat to do it. Persecuted. They would throw rocks at him when he preached. They would throw animal parts. His life was threatened. He kept preaching, preaching. He would throw up blood and he would keep preaching. Do you know anything about these men? What drove them? It was the sovereign grace of God, the knowledge that God can bless his word and only he can. Had we time, we would mention Jonathan Edwards. Had we time, we would look at Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And all of those connected with them in their churches, they became burning evangelists for Jesus Christ because they believed that God in his grace can save the lost and has promised to do so. Every believer is a Calvinist on his knees. Everyone. I have never yet heard a believer on his knees say, Lord, I'm so burdened for Aunt Susie because she doesn't know Jesus. I'm praying for my Aunt Susie, Lord, but then why am I really doing this? 
Because if Aunt Susie just doesn't want to come, she won't come and you can't do anything about it. Have you ever heard any Christian pray that way? The Christian gets on his knees and says, Lord, I'm burdened for my Aunt Susie. She's lost and undone and only you can save her. Lord, save Aunt Susie. Every Christian is a Calvinist on his knees. Someone says to me, well, it's hard to witness. It's not. I'll tell you why it's hard to witness. It will not be hard for you to witness if you'll get your Christian experience out of mothballs. To witness for Christ, you must have fresh, updated Christian experience. The word must well in your power, in your heart with power. You must be prayed up and learn to pray through. You're on your knees in the morning. You're reading the word in the morning. You're asking God to forgive your sins and cleanse your heart. And you're believing and you're repenting daily. And the spirit of God is bringing worship into your soul. And some of you are still depending on Christian experience 20 years ago when you need fresh, updated communion with God in your heart now. And when it's there, it yields Christian witness. It's not hard to witness if your eye is off of yourself and your eye is on Calvary's hill. It will not be hard to witness if your faith is focused on Jesus who shed his blood for you and shed his blood for sinners. One preacher I once heard said, your life is either a Bible or a liable. The greatest curse on the church is indifference. And by the grace of God, I aim to preach at my own heart and to yours too so that all indifference is broken. Oh, may God make your life to be an open Bible for the lost to read so that then they will want to read the Bible behind your life and see on the pages of Holy Scripture the Redeemer of sinners. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.